Hello, I'm Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I am not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. This week, we are talking about Joshua Zeman's documentary, Murder Mountain, the history of marijuana in Humboldt County, California, and several high-profile murders in the Emerald Triangle area. Uh We've got hippies, guns, four-wheelers, drugs, serial killers, paramilitary government raids, and, of course, the birth of legal weed. (laughs) So, like I like to say from time to time, as a reminder, I'm obviously not a journalist. I am a person who likes to read or watch things and then tell her husband true crime stories that he may or may not like. But I guess this series yeah. is a little journalistically, uh-huh. journalisty. Mm-hmm. It's a holiday treat for you guys. So I'm doing a two-part series based on the docu-series Murder Mountain mm-hmm. and then a few other fantastic sources that I'll name at the end. This is like we normally do, you know, yada yada every week. Classic true crime podcasting via Muriel. Right. But then we're going to have an interview for you that Nick did with an old and wonderful friend who worked fell in love, and then started a family on Murder Mountain. Yes. Who, spoiler alert, hated the documentary. <laughs> he couldn't and get couldn't through watch it. it. <laughs> he started, it was like, I didn't like anything about it. So I'm making a whole two-part series on this thing that the person who we know that yes. lived there thinks is, isn't a fan. I thought it was really entertaining. Yeah. Uh, and finally, mm-hmm. guess what? What? Not you, them. <laughs> Nick and I are taking our cat Bongo to Humboldt County on a road trip. We are going to be staying in a trailer in the middle of nowhere for a couple of days and doing our version of investigative journalism, <laughs> bar hopping, eating hamburgers, and being too shy to talk to anybody. <laughs> but yes, we yes. will deliver hardcore on a Humboldt County vibe report. <laughs> yes. And though you will probably smoke uh, very small amounts of incredibly, um, what's the opposite of potent, weak-ass weed. I will not. I will be <laughs> very alert. <laughs> so this is exciting. It's kind of like a four-part series, I guess, but each episode is going to be standalone. Yes. Right. And the uh-huh. uh, road trip one's only going to be on our Patreon. So Whatever. Just stay tuned, man. You know what I mean? We got you covered, bro. Uh, It is that wonderful, terrible, holly jolly, oh so difficult time of the year. And we do not take it lightly that you all bring us into your lives around the holidays. We want to spend. <laughs> Nick, I'm sorry. Can what? I want to interrupt you? Why? You're so funny because you've been spending the whole day being, uh, I don't know. What? Just so insane about the holidays we got to the point you are being like you're wild and sensitive it's the end of the year man it's it's It's, always my worst time of the year it's my i mean it's my not my 
most greatest time, but it's just very funny that you wrote it. Uh, Holly Jolly Ola, so difficult time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm good at writing. You know what I mean? I'm able to crystallize the emotion. Right. You know and, what I mean? you know, do a podcast while also simultaneously having a meltdown. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. This, that's the skill. You know what I mean? Okay. All right. Anyways, I forget what I was saying, but we do want to send a special shout out to Nicole, AKA Nico Suave 91. Love to you and your whole family. And happy and birthday. Happy freaking birthday. Okay. And then for all of you out there, who are looking for that last minute, perfect Christmas gift to give to yourself and to Nick and Muriel at the same time, please consider joining our Patreon. Five bucks gets you a treasure chest of Patreon-only episodes, and it gives us the treasure chest that is the resources and inspiration to keep making this podcast. www.patreon.com slash Muriel's Murders. All right. This is a true story. Oh, wait. I also want to say, you're going to do this later, but what? We're, we're releasing a bunch of new merch. Oh, yeah. We're, we're uh, in the process of developing some very good t-shirts hoodies and sweatshirts and tank tops all hand designed by muriel and i we're putting a lot of effort into this uh i guess we're just telling people now uh but jo- i'm just saying like yeah seed it in you yeah know it's I just mean? starting to happen it's just bubbling Some and we're of them are ripoffs of the simpsons i don't know if we're gonna be able to have them on there for too long well that's a good reason to join the <laughs> patreon because we're gonna start uh just offering exclusive little things to our patreon people first to get the ball rolling so join by january you know what i'm saying yeah Okay, if you want that good bootleg illegal <laughs> merchandise. Okay, go ahead. This is a true story, Muriel Muriel. This is a true story involving murder, violence, drugs, adult themes, etc. So if any listeners are like Nick and they don't want to hear about those kind of things, go listen to a different podcast. Plus, we'll probably do a little cursing and joking. So if you're sensitive to that, turn us off and go watch the Weather Channel. All right, Nikki, are you ready to hear this story? No. Okay, let's get started. Ladies and gentlemen and friends beyond the binary is a story that takes place behind the Emerald Curtain in Northern California in the back roads of Murder Mountain. Hell yeah. Joshua Zeman's Murder Mountain is a documentary series on the history of weed production in and around Humboldt County and the attending hippies, outlaws, drugs, missing persons, and murders. So for more than four decades, the Emerald Triangle, for those not in the know, Mm because I'm kind of not in the know, that's the intersection of Humboldt, Trinity, and Mendocino counties in Northern California. That was a Venn diagram, and still is, of straight-up outlaw culture and the epicenter of ganja production in the U.S. (laughs) This is where we've been getting our weed this whole time. Yeah, I remember in high school, it used to be like BC weed, you know, and then Humboldt County hit and then BC weed was garbage. That was like the, that turned into like the trash weed like overnight. I was never, um, and still am not a connoisseur of weed, but neither am I really, but I, I didn't know the differences from places or anything like that. Uh I did buy weed one time in my entire life and it was You've only bought weed one time from somebody that that wasn't like my like I've been like oh I've got five on it <laughs> yeah. right but uh-huh. like to actually have bought 
with weed. Uh-huh. I've only done it once from like an actual drug dealer. And it was this guy that I knew in high school yeah. who I thought was super cool. And he, we were talking and I said something and he was like, I'll sell you weed. And I was like, okay, try to be cool. My friend, Anna Shay and I got in her car and he goes, meet me in the parking lot of Walgreens. And so we were like, oh, damn, this is going to be crazy. <laughs> and so we drove up and we were like super nervous. Yeah. And we walked in the parking lot. This is circa 1999. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, we walk into the parking lots in the middle of the day. We're like, how could he do a drug dealer in the middle of the day? <laughs> yeah. This is so insane. And out comes my contact yeah. out of the Walgreens in a Walgreens uniform because he worked there and then he walked up to the car and he sold me about $5 worth of weed that he was holding in his hand with no bag for $20. And then he, he just handed me like a single nug and then I gave him $20 and I was like, thanks man. And he's like, okay. And then I showed my friend, yeah. uh, I think I showed my friend Eric. I was like, hey man, we got, I got us a 20 cents. <laughs> He's like, oh no, you spent twenty dollars on that. I was like, Rudy's such a buster. Also, he's like wearing his name. (laughs) So anyway, all right. A lot of this for me is Mm -hmm. brand new information. For others, it may be like, oh yeah, duh. Obviously, that's where weed comes from. So I'm doing it from that perspective. I think I can't really contribute to this or this. This episode would be a thousand hours long. That's what our Patreon Humboldt episode is going to be. Okay, continue with the story. Okay, keep going. I want to make fun of you. I have antidotes. I'm biting my tongue. You. All right, let's go. Once upon a time. Some antidotes in here. Okay, I'm just saying. What I want to do is just like fully say I tried my best to make this an accurate thing, but a lot of Mm -hmm. it's just like a. It's something that I should know about. Uh I'm cool. No, I'm you're from not. the West Coast. <laughs> There's a lot of new information. Okay, me. once upon a time in Humboldt County. All right, so we're going to take you from the very beginning of naked hippie farming in the mountains and the serial killers who gave Murder Mountain its name up through the legalization of medical pot, which is different than what we have now, mm-hmm. the green rush, the disappearance of Garrett Rodriguez, and then the rapid succession of murders of three old school growers mm. in the community. And then finally, how Proposition 64 and the full legalization of marijuana actually probably harshed a lot of people's buzz. <laughs> cool, man. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Groovy. Okay, so yeah. the hippies landed in the hills of Garberville in the 1960s. So all of these like names of cities and towns are all kind of a part of this Emerald Triangle area. Right. With Alder Point being the center of the area that people call Murder Mountain. But they're all like related and you know Okay. Northern California. Yes. Northern California in the Emerald Triangle. So They land in Garberville in the 1960s. There had been this big timber bust in the area. So most of the land had been clear cut and was selling for like nothing, like Mm -hmm. a few hundred bucks an acre. People were just trying to get rid of it. It was mountainous, remote, 
And turns out, once the trees grow back, pretty easy to hide from the cops. <laughs> so people came from all sorts of reasons or for all sorts of reasons. Some came to isolate after serving in the Vietnam War, but most of them were so-called back-to-landers. So people who wanted to live off the land simply and yeah. do everything from scratch, like a, a counterculture movement almost to the hate Ashbury psychedelic scene in San Francisco. Gotcha. It was kind of like, we're going to be gentler, right? Yeah. We want to be alone. Yeah, or like in a commune, right? But just mm -hmm. more naked and like <laughs> less concrete. Okay. So... Uh, this is what it looked like according to OG Humboldt grower and diehard hippie Douglas Fir. That's his name. He's not a trait. His name is Douglas Fir. He changed that shit. You all, nobody's, I can't tell. Okay. I, I'm not a journalist. I can't find his birth certificate. So in 1968, uh -huh. Douglas Fir. Said that he and some friends basically bought a, a 40 acre parcel of land in Humboldt County for $11,000. Mm -hmm. And there, buck naked, except for a two belt, I saw the pictures. <laughs> Doug, they were just buck naked, no shoes, and a two belt. He's got a couple hammers hanging low, if yeah. you know what I mean. Wieners everywhere. <laughs> Uh, Douglas and his group of friends built the Nonagon. This is a nine-sided communal house, custom-made for naked jam banding, <laughs> dancing, whatever, man. <laughs> and when the Nonagon completed, yeah. attention was turned to growing and cultivating staples that you would need to eat, such as super dank weed. <laughs> the bare necessities. At first... The situation was pretty much like digging little holes with a soup spoon mm. while naked and then dropping in seedlings grown from the Mexican swag that they had all been smoking. So that was like very gotcha. experimental in the early days, a uh, soup spoon technique. Mm -hmm. There was a pretty quick learning curve. Most of the seedlings died at first, but eventually the hippies developed more of a system. So they started using a technique called sinismilla. I think that's how you pronounce it, sinismilla. So that's basically the practice of isolating male and female plants from each other. What happens, at least with pot plants, is that the female plants to you know, when they think there's nobody around to pollinate them, mm -hmm. they start to produce like fatter buds and stinkier smells to try to kind of attract the men. Mm. So it's a way of creating danker bud by just separating them out. That's cool. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. And then uh, they also have higher levels of THC apparently. So it does make it danker, not just stinkier. Okay. <laughs> so when weed selling entered the picture... In this early, like, hippie colony How structure. many more times are you going to say dank? A lot. I have a lot of different words. <laughs> oh, okay. no. So when weed smelling entered this picturesque, like, you know, nudist colony thing going on, uh -huh. the vibe was more or less like, hey, man, cool. This will probably bring in, like, $10 an ounce, some hacky sack money, but not, like, life-changing <laughs> money, right? <laughs> But yeah, yeah. as we will find out, this is America and the wheel of capitalism really just started spinning and spinning. Okay. <laughs> so eventually. The street... Like a whirling dervish at the hacking sack world cup. <laughs> Very good analogy. 
So eventually the street price for a seasonal crop from 10 plants. So think about this, right? Mm -hmm. 10 weed plants. We've all seen them. It's like a big dollhouse plant, right? Yeah. So, you've seen Cheech and Chong at least. Yeah. Everyone. Like, and if you haven't seen Cheech and Chong, go watch it. Anyways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the street price for a seasonal crop of, of 10 plants with all of these techniques would yield about 10 pounds of bud. And eventually the street price for those 10 pounds reached $40,000. So that's more than enough to support a family who grows their own food and didn't eat a lot of clothes, right? Right. And you're talking about 10 plants. We could have 10 plants in our living room right now and, you know, make $40,000 and that's what you'd live off of. That'd be tight. Right. It's not that, it doesn't take that much space to grow 10 plants. No. Right. Yeah. And if you can make $40,000, you can make $80,000. Maybe you can make $100,000. Just keep on going, man. So the region, like the growers in the region, basically pretty quickly became national producers of the ganj. <laughs> now, the dank, dank weed. The dank, dank ganj. Mm -hmm. okay. When they really started making cash, the home videos featured in the Murder Mountain documentary really changed, okay? So there's like a nicer commune home. Mm -hmm. Someone is like out there rocking out super hard, weaving on a commercially made weaver's loom, you know? Uh -huh, like before uh -huh. it was like, I've got these sticks, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. And now it's like really like, oh, we're, we're, you know, some people started wearing overalls. <laughs> it was more like decadent, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Of course, they didn't pay any federal income tax or anything. And so eventually they came up with this sort of self-taxation system. So everyone had what was called a pencil patch so that's a section of their grow operation just straight up dedicated to raising money for local schools so mm -hmm. they, the pencil patch is for the kids gotcha right and then like through all this money they funded a community center they funded the redwoods rural health clinic and they even Funded a nonprofit radio station. I'm assuming KMUD, K M U D. And what that did uh -huh. was broadcast announcements from the local civil liberties monitoring project. So this was like a hippie organization that they put together uh -huh. who just basically collectively watched law enforcement activity in the area and then would just put them on blast in the radio. <laughs> so you just turn on the radio and be like, okay, Officer Henry's coming down exactly. the street. Watch him. Ted says he's, he pulled over someone for a broken taillight. It's literally that. Yeah. Because these guys are from the mountains. Great vantage point. Everything is dirt road. So you can see someone coming a bagillion miles away in a cloud right. of smoke. They're just like, Cop on 8th Street. You know, like, it's <laughs> yeah. just whatever. So they're always, like, kind of letting people know what's Ah, uh, that's so cool. And, you know, like, you're learning. These hippies, they weren't all sunshine and flowers. And, like, yeah, man, whatever, you know. They followed the tradition of winemakers on the West Coast. Mm. And they got hip to regional varietals that matched up with their growing conditions. So Nick and I know a little bit about this. But, of course, like... Mm -hmm the winemaking regions and like Southern or Northern California, Washington and Oregon, a lot of them 
really mimic some of the growing conditions in like France. Right. And so some really classic wine can be produced in those regions. Right. So what they did is they got word of a Pakistani strain that thrived at the same latitude as, you know, Humboldt County Mm -hmm. and at high altitudes in colder weather conditions, right? So it was like much better suited to the mountainous Northern California area, like more than what they had been bringing up from Mexico, for instance. Right. So apparently Mm -hmm. out in Pakistan, there was a family who would hand sew these seeds into the seams of different kinds of like traditional clothing and other fabric-based textiles like hats and purses and stuff to hide the seeds or as a part of the actual clothing right to hide the seeds. okay (laughs) well i don't know it's a plant it's a hemp thing you know no no they're like some dope seeds in the in you know trying to make some money off some (laughs) dank dank wheat so our man douglas fur flew out to pakistan to buy seeds of his adventure he said quote there were a couple of intense moments but I was not busted. <laughs> so in all of this like clothing and hats and purses that he bought, he's uh-huh. like, I'm just a very enthusiastic collector. He was able to smuggle in about a kilo of Asian indica seeds, mm. which is a lot of seeds. Yeah, damn. So obviously... They start planting the seeds. They start doing hybrids. They start, you know, thriving. Humble weed prices went from about $300 a pound, like for street value, to about $1,600 a pound in just a few years. What era is this still? 70s, 80s. So like, it's all on a continuum, man. There's not a lot of like... It's a spectrum. I get it. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of... It's just like the soft, uh, soft birthing of a object time is a circle or a line or something it doesn't matter i get it yeah yeah, yeah. so back in the day you know when we're talking about the early times Mm. law enforcement really just couldn't get up into the mountains to bust anyone from for growing pot it was just really hard (laughs) yeah yeah. they're all hiding in the woods doing their grows in the forest like (laughs) running around naked like hiding (laughs) pretending to be a tree like nobody can find these guys right Uh and they could basically get by with lookouts the hippies right Uh so they would use those radio reports um that were broadcasted over the radios they just have people in like different lookout positions and then they'd see a cloud of dust coming up the road and they do super peaceful things like They'd be like, okay, you know, flower child, go get in the backhoe. And then he'd get in the backhoe and then he'd drive a backhoe to a dirt road and take out like a fuse or something like that. Some simple part of the engine that just made it inoperable. That blocks the road. Exactly. Spoiler alert. You guys are going to hear that um, that exact thing was still well in in effect, like late into the 2000s. That's awesome. I think it's a great tactic. You're just like, whoops, backhoe. Move it. Well, I tried, man. It just won't stop, man. <laughs> but also just this idea that there really are, there's like one road up and one road down. It's very narrow. Yeah, right. Exactly. And you're not going to sneak on or off this mountain right. without the people living there either knowing it and hiding or just stopping it from happening. Yeah, right. I mean, and, and really when you look at the roads in Alder Point, like on Murder Mountain or around mm-hmm. that area, 
because they're mountainous, yeah. like you're saying, they're narrow. And then imagine a steep drop off. So if there's a backhoe, you can't like go around it. Yeah, you yeah. Like tumble down into the trees. And then on the side of the road, there's just tons of shut out cars, at least in the footage that I saw. All right. But I guess at least temporarily, most of that changed in 1971 when U.S. President Richard Nixon declared a war on drugs. America's number one enemy was now drugs. And the federal government was getting ready to bust some weed farms. So the backhoe in the road thing wasn't quite as effective at that point. Mm -hmm. And now growers were basically faced with like a, like a federally funded paramilitary assault. Right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you had law enforcement in fatigue. They were fanning out in the woods, chopping down covert marijuana grows hippies would like sneak out this i think awesome because they'd have these grows out in the woods where you couldn't they were like kind of integrated into the whole ecosystem yeah but the leaves are bright bright green so they would sneak out and they would uh paint the leaves with tempera paint mm. just like a like a non-toxic paint like right, right. as a kid to like dull the leaves and make it look like a different color <laughs> yeah. and then in the 1980s, the Reagan administration created CAMP. So that's the Campaign Against Marijuana Planting. And they really, like, hopped up these, like, military resources. And mm -hmm. then they also did this thing where they brought narcotics officers from these big urban centers to bust the hippies up in the hills. So now there's all this funding, helicopters, crazy crap, right? Mm-hmm. I might be wrong, but I think this is also the time where, like, in the caravans to come and bust these camps, they were just, like, chipping stuff. So that's a part of it. Is It's the same as, like, it is now. What does chipping mean? Like, they just, in the caravan, there's also a wood chipper, like, a Oh, so they just trailer. destroy stuff. Yeah, yeah, so they just go in, chop everything down, and just throw everything yeah. through a wood chipper. Yeah. There is, I just want to say, is like, a little side tangent. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite, I like watching stupid videos of people doing dumb things. And one of my favorite ones is uh, it's just a video of a reporter who's covering this huge narcotics bust where they had like cut all this weed down and, and we're then burning, they're burning it. it. And he's so high that he keeps he, he can't talk. He goes, yeah. "Here we are in the hills of." <laughs> No, no, stop, stop. Go again, go again. I can do it, I can do it. And he goes, here in, this, here in the hills. <laughs> it's the funniest thing I've ever That's seen. That's a good one. And so I just could not stop thinking about that when I was thinking about them. They figured out how to wood chip it, but I think they were burning it. Everyone was trying to sign up for that task force. <laughs> oh, That's so funny. So anyway, mm -hmm. camp was so aggressive and successful in busting illegal growing operations that they ended up also exploding the price of weed. Oh, sure. Right, right, right. So with more money to be made with riskier behavior, some of the gentler hippies started to leave this now pretty violent scene because it was mm -hmm. a place where a lot of people were raising kids and it was more about like a community-oriented yeah. space. Mm -hmm. And they are then now replaced with more hardcore people motivated by the money and yeah. less by the like, I, the idyllic lifestyle or whatever. Yeah. Suddenly there's not so many hacky sacks going around. Now you're right. getting some, some guns and stuff. And I think like it is totally, you know, good to say like 
this is such a gradual thing. Right. Know? So it yeah, doesn't yeah. have like a year on it. It's just kind of, if you're thinking about it in terms of the spectrum, it's just it's the idea simply that like, as you, it becomes more lucrative, you're just going to have more and more people who are willing to take more and more risk to be there. And that includes stealing and like, you know, more escalated activity. And if people are stealing, then you're going to have to have more guns. And then, gotcha. you know, like, right. it's that kind of stuff. Right. So we're in this space, right? Camp has <laughs> inadvertently driven up the point, like the price of pot. Production is going very well, despite the fact yeah. they weren't like, they were effective, but not like effective. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the drive is too hard. The mountain is too strong. And produ- production definitely kept going. And then the community shifted again when Proposition 215 was passed in 1996 in California. Mm -hmm. So before we get to Prop 215 and medical marijuana, we're going to go back just for a moment and talk about how the area surrounding Alder Point, California and Humboldt County got the nickname Murder Mountain. So... In the midst of all this like ramped up war on drugs during the 80s, the industry is continuing to pull in tons of money. And as the industry grew, it demanded more labor. And a lot of that labor came in the form of seasonal trimming work. So growers would basically hire people to live on the farm. They still do during harvest harvest season and trim pounds and pounds of weed, which at the time was a really good way to earn cash under the table Mm -hmm. and then move on. Right. Right. So the the town was never shy of drifters. Yeah. In the 80s, Scott Johnson, an old school Humboldt hippie dude, was running a growing operation with his best friend, Clark Stevens. And he was on a mission to find a couple trimmers to work for them. So Scott Johnson ran into a couple wandering around Alder Point in 1982. Scott thought they had real good energy. They were into mysticism and whatever. So he was like, yeah, man. And he brought them back to the farm to trim some bud. Unfortunately, Scott Johnson's groovy radar was a little (laughs) off, and that couple ended up being Michael Bear Carson and his wife, Suzanne, a.k.a. the San Francisco Witch Killers. What? Who described themselves as being religious warriors involved in a holy war against witches. (laughs) How do they describe? Well, okay, that's see. It's like, all right. Well, who do you think is a witch lady? You know exactly. <laughs> the hippies growing the weed, or Nancy Reagan, or who? You she, know, she decides because she's psychic. Okay, it's okay. not. <laughs> I mean, you should be hunting witches regardless, but that's just a scary. You know, yeah. There's not a lot of logic behind this. It's all <laughs> about feelings, man. Yeah, and vibes. So apparently. <laughs> Susan was really great at identifying witches, and Michael was super awesome at killing them. Oh, God. So in 1977, like a few years prior, Mr. Carson had enough of a freak out that his first wife left him Mm. with his young daughter, and they went into hiding for several years. Oh, he scared them off. Yeah. Yes. So after that, Michael Bear hooked up with Susan. She was a divorcee, about 10 years his senior, and they both got super into psychedelics and mysticism. Mm -hmm. So I, I couldn't find like a 
lot of primary information about them. I think they went to Europe for a while and traveled around. Apparently, they got married at Stonehenge at, in the middle of the night, which seems very witchy to me. <laughs> I know. This is the most witchy couple of all time. Right. So after they come back from Europe, they're living in Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco during this like psychedelic period that mm-hmm. a lot of hippies had fled at that time. Mm-hmm. And in March of 1981, they beat their roommate, Karen Barnes, to death with a frying pan oh. after deciding she was a psychic vampire. <sighs> Basically, Susan, for her whole life, had claimed to be a psychic. Uh-huh. And she was telling Michael Bear Carson that when Karen was around, she was like a 20-something young, beautiful actress. R.I.P. She says when Karen's around... Karen was blocking her psychic energy, so she couldn't be psychic when when Karen when uh, when Karen was around. If you're out here blaming other people for being toxic, there's at least at least a ninety nine point nine percent chance that you're the actual toxic one. Right. Uh, Susan was telling Michael Bear basically that look, Karen is becoming healthier and prettier every single day, while I'm being sucked of my energy and I'm looking old, right? Oh, so she's just literally a hater. uh, So she said, Karen has to be some sort of witch. Uh That's enough for Michael Bear Carson. So he killed their young roommate. Horrible. After they beat her with the frying pan, the couple stabbed Karen Barnes 13 times, wrapped her in a blanket, and left her in the basement of their apartment building. Jesus. After that, they fled to Grants Pass, Oregon, which if you're not familiar with the coast, San Francisco's kind of like northern mid California mm-hmm. and then Oregon is like the next state north. So they started fleeing north getting mm-hmm. away. In 1982, the Carsons made it to Alder Point in Humboldt County and there is when they ran in to Scott Johnson, who then picked them up in his car and took them to his farm to work as trimmers right outside oh, of Garberville. No. In the spring of 1982, the Carsons were positive that Scott Johnson's best friend, 26-year-old Clark Stevens, was absolutely for sure a witch. They shot him in the head, Mm. attempted to burn his body, and ended up burying him in a pile of chicken manure where his body was found two weeks later. Damn. So by the time... The body was found. The Carsons had already disappeared. But police did find a manifesto that they had written about killing a number of people for being witches, including their plan to kill Johnny Carson for being a witch and also Ronald Reagan for being a witch. Mm -hmm. In November 1982, in that, that fall, basically, like a few months after the spring, Michael Bear was arrested by police in Los Angeles, but... On a technicality or some sort of mistake, he was kind of accidentally released, leaving behind like all this evidence and a gun and all this kind of stuff. But he got away. Uh Then in January of 1983, just a few months later, they killed their final known victim. Actually, people believe they've killed a lot more people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'll just say this in like the great uh, tradition of these kind of serial killers in the 70s. I feel like they were not very 
diabolically good at hiding anything. All of their yeah. stuff was super, super, super obvious, and they left stuff behind, but they just were able to keep on going. Right, right. So they do believe that they might have killed more people. Sure. But this is the last known person, and this guy was the most obvious. They killed John Charles Halar five days after he'd picked them up hitchhiking. Uh, they ended up shooting and stabbing him with two knives on the side of the road in full view of cars driving by in like the middle of the day. Oh my God. So he wouldn't, it was really graphic and people, they, they were caught. Just immediately in the act. They were caught in the act. Of yeah. It. They had a quick high speed chase. Oof. After that, they were arrested. And uh, I'm not going to go too much further into their thing. They yeah. were really. Uh, super, super crazy. <laughs> they had a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. They like said that they wouldn't confess unless they got a press conference. So they totally like authorities set up a press conference. It was hours long. Mm -hmm. They smiled and laughed and held hands the whole time and talked about how they were being religiously persecuted and how proud they were of killing witches. And then they recanted later. Like I tried to watch some of it. It's just like very completely bizarre mm -hmm. uh but anyway that's how murder mountain got its name oh from those guys yeah okay and a bunch of other murders that also happened. that happened later right okay um another person that you might want to keep in mind mm -hmm. is just our friend scott johnson who at this point at least according to friends and family felt incredibly guilty about hiring Ooh. a couple who then came right. to the farm and killed his best friend. Right. That's a rough one. Right. I understand. So, yeah. And then we'll talk more about Scott, Scott Johnson. He features really heavily in the second half of this mm -hmm. story. So the witch killers come through the area. They mess everything up. Camp wades have driven up the price of weed. Tricky growers were able to continue to grow. Money continued to pour into the area. And then Proposition 215 passed. And a medical marijuana card gave its owner the right to grow a few plants. It started with six plants per card, expanded, you know, kind of again and again, eventually to 99 plants per person. Yeah, which is just so many plants for one, one person trying to smoke some weed. I know, it's ridiculous. It's just really a lot. There, We were here when... You know, it was still medical marijuana only. That's when we, we moved did. to L.A. Yeah, yeah, we moved here in like 2014, I think. Yeah. And it was, I got to say, pretty ridiculous. We went to get our card. I think the first time we went was to that lady on Melrose. Oh, yeah. She was hella mean to me. Nefertiti Brown. She that was, was her name. She, she was Dr. Nefertiti Brown. Everyone said, oh, it's so easy. It's so easy. I went in. This lady grilled me, ripped me to shreds to the point where I was like, okay, so should I just leave now? And then she was just like, well, here. And then she gave me the card. Like she was literally just power tripping. It was crazy. She was really mean to me too. I just said I had anxiety. I think you said you had flat feet. Everyone said it doesn't matter. <laughs> Everyone prepped me for like, it doesn't matter because also you'll see like on freaking Venice, That's right? What I was gonna say. On Venice, there's like, um, like a strobe light going and there's like techno music and there's like this old guy in a goofy hat, like dancing around. They're wearing like jokey hazmat things and like, come get your med card. Like that so the second time after Nefertiti Brown traumatized me and I actually did need some weed to get through the PTSD of getting my card when that thing expired, I went out to the techno people which out is, on Venice and got my card from them. Which is also 
just hilarious because you go to like Nefertiti Brown and she's acting really crazy and there's a huge line out the door (laughs) and it's like what is this but it's cheap right yeah if you go down to venice beach and get your card they're charging you like remember it's like five times it as was much. really it's expensive like a hundred dollars it was and you're so getting expensive it from a guy who's literally wearing like one of those like fuzzy green raver dr seuss hats with an empty on it he's his glasses like his glasses have like the fake eyes that pop out he's wearing like a like a, like a lab coat yeah. They just sign it for you, you know, so depending on our experience in L.A., I mean, the regulation, and we'll get into this, yeah. it's just like, whatever. Well, like, and then you go to the med store, and they're like, okay, you can only buy two pounds a day. <laughs> it's like, I, don't, I probably won't even smoke two pounds for the rest of my life. We smoke and eat edibles. Like, it's such weakling levels. Like, all the people that I admire, all the artists, all of the creatives that, you know, I look up to would like be completely ashamed of how little weed I actually consume when I feel like getting high. I mean, we used to go in and be like, well, we just want like a, like a weak kind. And they'd be like, what? It's like, <laughs> yeah. Just like a really weak kind of like mellow. And it's like, no, no, ineffective. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, okay. So yeah. this is a great transition to the fact that regulation mm-hmm. guidelines were just really slow to materialize. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, there were a lot of rules to help people understand like, oh, is this person growing plants for themselves? Are they growing it to sell to a medical dispensary? Are they Mm -hmm. selling it on the black market? Like there wasn't a lot of accounting for these plants and who they were going to. Yeah. And we're talking the 90s at this point. Yes. 1996 Mm -hmm. was when this passed. And then of course, like it takes years to sort of enact these sort of things. And then Apparently a lot more years to get like the regulatory stuff. So back to like Humboldt County and the Emerald Triangle, Mm -hmm. the tiny rural police force there didn't have the ability to really enforce anything anyway, even if there weren't such gray laws. And with these gray laws came like less and less federal intervention. Mm -hmm. So growers in Humboldt County just displayed their legal weed cars and Kept on trucking. And and another trick was there was no limit at one point in time Mm -hmm. in the earlier days and maybe years after that. There wasn't a limit for how many weed cards you could apply for. Right. So I could apply for five and then, you know, grow 500 plants even though I'm one person. (laughs) Yeah, right. Right. I only know that because of the interview that we're going to play down the line. I'm so excited for that. Yeah. So... Like, if you're following the timeline of this thing, it's like camp drives up the prices, people come in, innovation is happening, we've got stronger and better strains, the price is great, now we have legal weed in the form of medical marijuana, and people were just getting busted way, way less. Because everyone was confused with the changing rules and lack of regulations. At the end, the vibe was just like, well, you know, Let's just do like a thousand plants. It's not like anybody's checking. Yeah, so the yeah. vibe definitely got like way, way chiller. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then in 2009, the Obama administration announced that there wouldn't be any federal busting of people who were growing in accordance with their state laws. And this is really, according at least to this documentary, the thing that kicked off the so-called green rush 
in the Emerald Triangle. Mm -hmm. So you see all of this stuff is building and now you've got this promise that the feds aren't going to bust you. And mm -hmm. you've got these rules that basically mean you can kind of do whatever right. in California. So this is the point when there's this whole new influx of newcomers flocking to Humboldt, um, which was notorious for its lack of framework for regulating medicinal grow operations mixed with these awesome mountainous, foggy hills where you could just hide and the cops couldn't get in there. It's like <laughs> the perfect spot to go. Mm -hmm. You had Americans from all over the country coming up, like I guess like Hell's Angels. A lot of people talk about how many Bulgarians came to the area. Which I don't know. That's like, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, but you name it, just tons of people. There was a huge real estate boom too that attended that. And at its peak price, Humboldt weed was selling for around $5,200 a pound. Yep. Yep. You get those packs out to New York and people were spending a lot of money. Yeah. 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 And that was the best weed in the, I don't know about the world, but definitely the country. That's I mean, like, that's, like yeah. when people talk about good weed back then before all the indoor hydroponic stuff was like widespread, it was like Humboldt County was the shit. It's just fascinating because it's not that big of an area when you think about how much of an impact it had. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a very, you're talking about like this intersection of three counties, you know, yeah. it's, it's very cool to think about this population living in these misty woods that are producing weed for an entire nation. Well, it gets hot as hell in the summer. Oh, really? Really hot. Yeah. Tight. <laughs> so this is where, at least in some parts of the county, you start to see, like, in this influx, people are understanding they can start to come in, make, like, a couple million dollars in straight-up cash in, like, two growing seasons, and then just abandon their farm and disappear mm. so people who had the capital to come in and do a large-scale growing operation didn't even really have plans to stay forever it just yeah. had plans to kind of like get the cash and go hmm. not everybody but that you saw that you know, started to happen sure yeah, yeah. And this is also when you start to see this huge influx of crowds of kids showing up in humboldt to work as trimmers yeah and with all these new groups of people came more guns, human trafficking, more kidnappings, uh, exploiting migrant labor, violent crime, like all kinds of stuff. And you're in a situation where from the beginning, this is like an anti-cop town. Like uh -huh. these are places where people mediated their issues on their own. They built their own community center. They did that thing. And so it's still a part of the culture to do that. So it becomes this very complicated place to disappear essentially complicated or easy to disappear easy and then yeah. also complicated to find mm -hmm. so at this point you see uh, a little bit of an exodus from some of these og hippies who see the spike in the property value right and so they sell off and they leave um and of course all aspects of the situation get more complicated lots of drugs lots of people who didn't use banks and buried their money in the hills uh, a growing and increasingly violent community that traditionally never called the cops it's just like this is now becoming very a reactive kind of interesting community right so like we said harvest time is a really big deal so trimmers or i guess so-called trimmigrants come to humboldt <laughs> specifically to work during harvest so trimmers in the beginning 
traditionally were mostly women and mostly like hippie girls. The idea being that women were cheaper to board because they ate less and like less likely to rob you. I okay. Guess. That's what people say. Mm-hmm. And people really are living and working for room and board. Not, not they're getting paid also, but the room and board is a big part of why it's hella chill to go work on a farm in Humboldt. Right. So trimmers would generally come up to work nonstop for a month or so and then walk with the cash. So yeah. your plan was not to stay there all year and do yeah. it. It was just to kind of like come and go. Like one example of how it would work, like one gig in the 2010s at the Dookie Brothers farm. Um, he says his pay was $150 a pound of trimmed weed. So people work 12-hour days and... In that 12-hour time period, they do a pound if mm-hmm. they're kind of slow. And if they're fast, they do two pounds. So it yeah. just pays by the pound, not by the hour. And then they sleep in a trailer or on an air mattress in the room where they trim. So that's kind of the way it looks. And then you get fed by the farm. Mm-hmm. At least in this situation. I'm sure there are a million different farms and they did it in different ways. But right. that's an example of how that would work. And of course... You can imagine there's a lot of shady stuff like people hiring girls to work topless out in the middle of nowhere. There's really bad cell service in the mountains, especially at that time. So like, you know, there's a lot of times when if you got into trouble, you couldn't call anybody. People who would go and wait for buses stopping in nearby Eureka to come in and target the would-be trimmers for robbery or human trafficking. So people would just... Oh, they'd intercept them. Yeah, because the place has its own set of rules, you know. So maybe if you're feeling naive or you're thinking this is going to be this. Like if you don't have your wits about you or you are vulnerable in that way. Totally. You know, you can be a target for people trying to exploit people coming off the buses. And a lot of people were coming in were younger, you know. And maybe thinking the place is like more connected to that old school hippie culture than than it actually was like you know smoking weeds in the beautiful mountains and making cash right Mm -hmm. but because there's so much change in the area now you don't really know what you're getting into totally and that leads to the unfortunate fact that there were and are today tons of missing people in the area. Yeah. Humboldt County has the most missing persons cases out of every California county in the entire state, including Los Angeles. So according to CaliforniaCountyNews.org, Humboldt actually has the nickname the black hole. As of 2018, the state of California saw, the whole state of Mm -hmm. California saw 383 Missing persons per 100,000 annually, right? Right. Makes sense. So, just the county of Humboldt, Humboldt County, their missing persons rate is 717 people per per 100,000. So, basically double. Yeah. But just as like a little disclaimer, if you, you know, like you read and talk to people and do this whole thing, part of that is that people are also hiding their whereabouts just because of the nature of the pot industry. Mm-hmm. Like there was a really famous case of a 22 year old named Rebecca Martinez. She was reported missing in 2018 by her mom. And then the whole time she was on the bachelor. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, there's a lot of people that come okay, in and right. get in real trouble, right? But yeah. then there's some people like, hey, man, like whatever, right? She's not even off the grid. She's just on The Bachelor. Yeah. She's like, mom, I'm, I think she tweeted. I read her tweet. It was like, mom, I'm on The Bachelor. <laughs> it's just like, I get it. You know. Yeah. So missing persons is without a d- doubt, like a truly serious thing to pay attention to. And also sometimes those raw numbers are misleading. They can be misleading. And, yeah. you know, it also is an area that attracts people who want to get off the grid, right? So you're yeah. going to have people yeah. who are a little like maybe have like some counterculture, you know, values or feel like they can disappear for six months or whatever. Yeah. And also the statistics are a little misleading because lots of people are also found. So that's the reported missing people that year. But then a lot of them have been found. Oh, I hear you. A kind of reductionist view. California also apparently from what I've read has like relatively lax guidelines for like, reporting people missing so you don't have to some you know states have these like longer time periods where you have to wait before you can report someone missing. oh so someone shows up missing in one hour and it goes into the database as a missing person i don't know if it's an hour but it's something like right that. It's a yeah, little yeah easier yeah. to report somebody missing gotcha i think you can kind of just look at the statistics and deduce that it's a nice indication that it's a a wild place. Yeah, time is a spectrum. <laughs> Statistics and facts also a spectrum. Yeah. So in the early 2010s, 29-year-old Garrett Rodriguez left his home in San Diego to try and stake his claim on Murder Mountain. So this is right around the time that we're talking about this explosion of, you know, people entering the scene. Mm-hmm. So Garrett pretty quickly worked his way up to some sort of full-time supervising position, managing seasonal workers and doing other stuff. So he was not one of those people who would go up, you know, for a little chunk. He was staying up there a lot. Yeah, he lived there and he was talented and knew what was going on. So eventually what he told friends was that he had bought into a growing operation with a group of people in Alder Point, a.k.a. Murder Mountain. And after that, on visits to San Diego, friends said he always would come down with like a couple pounds of weed to sell and he'd just like splash out, throwing parties, buying people drinks and dinners and doing that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. According to his family and friends, Garrett's goal was to save up a big chunk of cash, like a couple hundred grand, and then retire to Mexico and just fish for the rest of his life. That was what he wanted to do. Sounds good. Garrett stayed in touch with his friends and family pretty regularly. Um, Phone calls with his dad like every other week. He'd been up in the Alder Point area for about a year when the phone calls just stopped. So there were rumors circulating in his friend group up until that point about Garrett kind of running in a rough crowd that he wasn't really well matched for. Mm -hmm. So over and over again, when people describe Garrett Rodriguez, they talk about somebody who is really friendly, really kind, has tons and tons of friends. So like even in Alder Point with spotty service, he still calls his dad more than I call my dad. (laughs) You know, he's like in touch with his parents. Mm. He's got tons of friends. He's always trying to invite people up. You know, he really is a a, social social guy. Yeah. But not necessarily a tough guy. Uh Uh-huh. And it sounded like 
friends who had visited him in Alder Point were kind of like, he's acting like it's cool. Knowing him, he looks like he's in over his head. Mm-hmm. His family had actually been trying to talk him into coming back to San Diego when he disappeared. So there was definitely some sort of conversation happening between friends and family about like, maybe this isn't the best spot for Garrett, right? Mm-hmm. Around January 2013, Garrett's family and friends really started chatting and realized no one had heard from him in weeks. But knowing he had spotty cell service in Rancho Sequoia, which is where his grow operation was, they kind of chalked it up to Garrett being really busy for work during a certain period. So they wait. Nobody hears from him. And then finally, his dad, Buzz, reported Garrett missing in April of 2013. And they were met with a somewhat lackluster response from law enforcement. Basically, the family was told by the sheriff's department in Humboldt County that it was just really, really common for people involved in grow operations in the area to just drop off the radar for months at a time. Mm -hmm. And also... Because Garrett made frequent road trips from Northern California all the way down to San Diego, which if you're listening from a different country, California is a super big state. Right. And it's particularly super long. So you're talking about driving from the top of the state the whole length down to the bottom of the state. When we do our uh, road trip, it's going to be about 11 hours to get to Humboldt from Los Angeles and San Diego is further south than we are. Exactly. So what? They're just saying, oh, he could be anywhere. Kind of. Nobody had any proof that he had ever made it to Humboldt County. You know, there wasn't any proof that he had disappeared in San Francisco or LA or whatever. Mm -hmm. So in the end... His family ended up holding a reggae-themed fundraiser in San Diego, and they raised enough money to hire private investigator Chris Cook. So she had been an investigator in Humboldt County for 27 years and knew the area, Mm -hmm. which is just really, really critical. It's something Garrett's friends and family in San Diego found impossible to navigate from all the way across the state. But it is such an insular community in this Emerald Triangle area that like without some sort of help, Mm -hmm. like people not from that area are not going to get anywhere. Right. So the only concrete thread that the family could use to track Garrett was a uh, 1998 white Dodge Ram pickup truck that his parents had helped him buy that was registered in his name. So they feel like if they could find the truck, they could probably find Garrett. Right, or at least a really solid clue as to something. Exactly, and because there's no, I don't know, utility bill in his name or something like that. Yeah, yeah, people are super off the grid out there. Right. So, of course... Private investigator Chris Cook's first point of action was to establish Garrett had been in the Murder Mountain area around the time of his disappearance because that's going to unlock then the resources of the law enforcement department. Mm -hmm. And remember the culture, right? Dirt roads, pit bulls, guns. No one likes to talk with police. So she couldn't like walk up and knock on doors being like, hey, man, do you know Garrett? You know, Mm -hmm. it wasn't really an option. So what she did was set up an anonymous tip line to help gather information. And she got some bites fairly 
early on, it seemed like a really good tactic. And it seemed like a lot of people on the mountain knew Garrett because, of course... He's friendly. He's friendly, right? Yeah. Specifically, there were a handful of young women who had worked as trimmers with Garrett on his grow operation. So they had known him pretty well. So this is good news, but also mixed news because the mountain is this apparently a big old gossip mill. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So everybody had some crazy story to tell, you know, something to do with Hell's Angels. Somebody had another story about gun trafficking. Nothing really verifiable and nothing that actually proved Garrett had disappeared and humbled. You know, like Mm -hmm. he was involved in this, this and this, but there was no real substantial tip. A girlfriend of Garrett's in San Diego did tell investigators that shortly before he disappeared, Garrett had told her that he was trying to get someone to buy him out of his share of the grow operation and move back to San Diego that he wanted out. So Chris Cook works with this tip line for about a month. And in late May 2013, word gets out about Garrett's truck. It was found in Humboldt County, about 20 miles from where he'd been living, still registered under his name. Mm -hmm. So this is like the first and critical step in getting local law enforcement involved with the case. And then after the car is found, other rumors start to pop out outside of the anonymous tip line. People are talking more. It's still unverified. It's still rumor. But the picture kind of becomes a little clearer that... Potentially Garrett was owed money, maybe around $50,000, that he might have been mixed up with crystal meth, and that instead of paying Garrett, the man who owed him the money shot him in the head and buried him Mm. at the Jewett Ranch. Mm. And there was other information that the killer was from Indiana, that everyone knew who it was, and that he'd been around town bragging, calling Garrett the dead boy. Mm. So they had a name, but the Humboldt Sheriff's Department basically said this man from Indiana had skipped town. They can't find him. And aside from that, they didn't have enough evidence, aside from rumor, to make an arrest or to get a warrant to search the Jewett Ranch. So even though they found the car connecting him, and there's all this talk about the specific place where his body might be. It's a dead end. It's the dead end. The, the cops decide we can't go any further with this. And the case runs cold. And on Thanksgiving 2013, a group of OG Murder Mountain growers, including Scott Johnson, Mm -hmm. the man who brought the San Francisco witch killers to the mountains in the 80s. Yeah. uh, They got together to dole out some vigilante justice. The group, who would later be named the Alder Point Eight, found Garrett Rodriguez that night. And in a series of bizarre events unrelated to Garrett Rodriguez, almost half of the Alder Point Eight would be murdered by the time weed became legal in California. Damn. And we will talk about all that next week. The Humboldt freaking saga. (laughs) (laughs) You were looking so worried for a second. I was like, we're almost done. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All right, you want to, uh, I don't know, 
crumble up these dank resources. Puff Puff, pass them on to our listeners. Here we go. Token it, man. Murder <laughs> Mountain, the 2018 Joshua Zeman docuseries. You can find it on Netflix. It's very, very fun. Unless you're you, my friend. Yeah, in that case, I am sorry. And I do really think you're a great guy. And you're right. I'm wrong. Okay. <laughs> Other sources. There's this awesome New Yorker article. It came out a while back in 2019. It's by Emily Witt, and it's called How Legalization Changed Humboldt County Marijuana. So if you're looking for something more bite-sized that tells you about the history, it's a really great article. Also, I just used a crap ton of local reporting from Lost Coast Outpost Mm -hmm. that just does mostly from what I can tell, community stuff and then crime blotter stuff from the Emerald Triangle area. And their um, name is The Lost Coast? Yeah. That's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. I and like that name. They they, uh, they do a lot of like covering different trials and, and, you know, helping link everything so you get a context for who's related to who because there's a lot of like clans out there so you can kind of figure out, mm-hmm. oh, that guy is connected to that guy. So anyway, yeah. Lost Coast Outpost is a really fun newspaper online thing that you can get local news from. Okay, and whatever you do, remember, Muriel is not a journalist. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to Muriel's Murders. Muriel did all of the research, writing, and hosting. I did all the recording, editing, and post-production. This podcast was recorded in our living room. To help support the podcast and to unlock exclusive episodes, please sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Muriel's Murders. If you enjoyed this episode, it would be amazing for Muriel and I if you texted it to a loved one in your life who you think would enjoy it as well. We love hearing from you. You all keep us inspired and motivated. To reach out to us, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Rate us on Spotify. Leave us a voicemail or send us a voice memo and we'll put it in an episode. Tag us on social media. We even have email. Wow. You can find all that information and the links in the show notes of this episode, or you can visit murielsmurders.com. Our music is by Mario Casolini. Find him on Instagram at Casolini Beats. That's it. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.